welcome to MSG. Thank you. This is Soma. <laughs> this is Sarah. Soma is one of the co-founders of the Brooklyn Brainery, which is crowdsourced, low-commitment education about everything you'd ever want to know. If you haven't been to brooklynbrainery.com, you should. And Sarah is a historical gastronomist, which means she blends the flavors of the past. <laughs> I thought you were going to say blends the future uh. with the past, which I wish I There's had those spiel. powers. That's, that's fine. Fourpoundsflower.com. Fourpoundsflower.com. And together we are masters of social gastronomy. Tonight we're going to be talking all about drinking. Drinking. So Soma's going to start. Yes. I will be, first up, I will be doing drunkenness, hangovers, mm -hmm. hangover cures, everyone's favorite thing. And Sarah will be talking <laughs> about drinking games throughout history. Are you going to introduce me like I introduced you? Yeah, get off the stage. All right. Welcome, welcome everybody. Our first speaker is about to come up on stage. His name, Jonathan Soma of the Brooklyn Brainery, and he's going to tell you how to get drunk. Soma, come on up here. All right, so how, how does ethanol work? Where does it go? Where, where does it come from? Um, so it goes into your body through your mouth. This is what your body looks like if you were cut in half. Um, it's very sad. Alcohol goes in your mouth. Then it goes in your esophagus. It might burn a little bit because alcohol loves to just like destroy everything on its path, kind of like Godzilla, but you'll be okay because it gets into your stomach. Um, it hangs out in your stomach for a variable amount of time. It makes its way into your small intestine, then into your bloodstream, then it is filtered through your liver, and finally it goes into your brain. And so after the point that it leaves the liver, it goes everywhere in your body. So. Alcohol does this cool thing where uh, a lot of drugs and stuff, they can't cross the blood-brain barrier, and they get trapped, and they just circulate around in your blood. Maybe they have to like react with something else, to turn into something else, blah, blah, blah. Alcohol's like, no. No, I'm going wherever I want, and no one can stop me. And it absolutely does that. It goes everywhere in your body. But most of the time, for what's important anyway, it hangs out in your brain. So as soon as it goes into your brain, you start to notice something. And the thing that you start to notice is that you feel awesome. Like, <laughs> you, there's another one of Godzilla playing basketball later, so get excited. So, all right, so when alcohol gets into your brain, scientifically speaking, you're ready to do all sorts of things. You're ready to have a good time. You're ready to talk to babes and studs. Um, you're just, you're ready to do everything. So, but I'm talking to you and you're like, you know, Soma, I've always known that when I drink alcohol, life is awesome and I'm dunking all the time and I can destroy cities and all this. But isn't alcohol a depressant? But the thing is, are you guys sad about this? <laughs> Clearly you don't hang out on Reddit enough because that's a meme. So. Um, it's a depressant, but it doesn't make you, I mean, it can make you depressed, but a depressant is different from something that just makes you sad, like a very sad movie or a very bad breakup. Um, what a depressant does is it acts on your central nervous system. And what it specifically does is ethanol reacts with something called gamma aminobutyric acid, um, which is just GABA. And uh, what GABA does is it's, it's a neurotransmitter and it's the, the don't do that neurotransmitter or the stop doing that neurotransmitter. 
Um, I think it's called like the general inhibitory neurotransmitter, but that's not as fun as the stop doing that neurotransmitter. So the idea is, um, so let's say you're feeling anxious and you haven't had anything to drink. GABA might be like, stop being anxious. And you don't, you don't know what's happening there. You, you can't hear it. Um, so then you have one drink and your brain is like, how about you feel a little anxious? Now, GABA is uh, being encouraged, basically, by all of your alcohol. So it's being a little bit more uh, depressive or inhibitory than it usually is. So your brain's like, hey, let's get sad about something. Let's get anxious. And Gabby's like, no, you shouldn't get anxious about something. Don't do that. And you're like, okay, I guess, I guess I'll loosen up a little bit. I'll be a little okay. So uh, you drink a couple more beers. And then... You're like, okay, I'm gonna go pick up this beer. And your brain's like, pick that beer up. And Gabby's like, you're a few more beers in. It has a little bit more alcohol going around. And it's like, don't do that. And you're like, ah. Oh. And you almost spill your beer because Gabba's getting in the way of you trying to, trying to get stuff done. And then a few beers after that, you're like, all right, I'm gonna sit down in this chair. It's gonna be great. And Gabba's like, don't do that. Because it has even more alcohol cooperating with it. And you, you fall on your ass and it's all very sad. Um, so what happens is as time goes on and you drink more and more alcohol, GABA is able to do more and more things and like get in the way more and more. So sometimes it's good in that it makes you less anxious, but sometimes it's bad in that, you know, if you try to drive a car, you'll drive it into the side of a building or into the side of a person. Um, so it's what makes your central nervous system depressed. And so it's, it's more depressive as in it makes you less good at things as opposed to making you sad. So it turns you into a slow poke. So uh, another thing that alcohol does is it reacts with serotonin and dopamine, and it makes you excited like that kitten. Um, it also like it makes you have fun, and it makes you get addicted to alcohol. So two-sided coin on that one. So you're there, you know, you have some GABA being, you know, pulled down. You're not anxious. You're stumbling a little bit. Serotonin and dopamine uh, rocking out. You're feeling really good. You're on a roll. But then suddenly you're like, I really have to pee. I have to pee bad. And I have a joke on here and it says something fishy is going on, but I don't think that's a good joke. It's, that's a fish. So um, the reason why this happens is because of your kidneys. And your kidneys filter your blood. And just like whenever you're doing dishes, like you can do dishes like leaving the water on in the sink and just like washing them and putting, or you can fill up the sink and then do all of your dishes. And in the kidneys, it's kind of the same way. And that your kidneys can, generally what they do is they filter your blood, and then they, after they've filtered it, um, they kick out all the bad parts, and then they take all of the, the moisture back. They take all the water back. So instead of just like spitting out all of the water in your body, it just recycles it. So you don't need to drink like 1,000 gallons of water a day. But what happens whenever you start drinking alcohol is it suppresses something called vasopressin. Um, those are kidneys in a bathtub. And so uh, whenever the vasopressin is being suppressed, your kidneys don't reuptake all of that water that they're using to filter everything. So it's like doing the dishes with just the water running and the drain unplugged and all the water's just going through. So you just have to go to the bathroom. You have to pee all the time because instead of absorbing that water back into your body, your body's like, oh, I don't need that water. It's fine. It's just get rid of it. Just get rid of it. It's okay. But you do, you really want that water. Um, it's bad because then you just hang out in the bathroom all the time. So the problem is not just that 
you're drinking all of this extra liquid. Because some people are like, oh yeah, I go to a bar, I drink like 40 beers, and then I have to pee 40 beers out. It's not like that at all, because generally, your body would be reusing all of the liquid that comes in with the beer that isn't the ethanol. But instead, you're peeing out those 40 beers, and then you're also peeing out everything else that's in your body, because you don't have any vasopressin left. So there's this idea of breaking the seal, where the, it was really hard to find a picture of a seal breaking through some ice. So whenever you first go to the bathroom, you're like, OK, once I start to pee, I'm just going to have to pee all the time. And it's true, but the reason why it's true isn't because there's some like magic seal that lives in your body. Um, but it's because whenever you first start drinking, there's still vasopressin hanging out in your kidneys. So your kidneys are still like, yeah, we're recycling water, we're recycling water. But then it's like, eventually, like the dish water gets dirty, and then it pulls the plug, and the vasopressin disappears, and then it all catches up to you all at once, and then you're like, I have to pee forever now. So breaking the seal, not real. Pee all you want all the time. Um, it won't harm you. So now, now that you're really, you really got things going um, with urination, you might be kind of drunk. <laughs> But the question is, how did you get here? How can you get here faster? Or how can you slow down the train to Drunksville? So this is a cool picture of your stomach. I have a laser pointer. So this is your stomach, right? This is your stomach. This is where all the alcohol lives whenever you drink it. This is your pyloric sphincter, which prevents things from going into your small intestine. So uh, you absorb a little bit of ethanol into your bloodstream and the stomach, but generally you can just pretend that you don't. Um, all the absorption happens in the small intestine. So when alcohol's chilling in your stomach, it doesn't really do much. As soon as it passes the pyloric sphincter and goes into your small intestine, bam, it goes in your bloodstream, you start to get drunk. So the way I like to think about movement of alcohol through your body is a bunch of really cool skateboarders. <laughs> And the skateboarders are skateboarding through your mouth, and they're, they're ethanol skateboarders. And they go through your stomach, and if there's nothing else in your stomach, say there's no food, there's no water, whatever, they're like, yeah, we're skating on through, we're going right through the sphincter, and the sphincter's like, I don't care, skateboarding's cool by me, and then it goes right into your small intestine, and bam, you get drunk really fast if there's nothing else in your stomach. So what do you think you can do about it? If you eat beforehand, what it does, that's, that's a banana peel. It's supposed to signify a banana even though you don't eat banana peels. Um, so if you eat food before you drink, it doesn't actually absorb the alcohol. That's a, a common myth that uh, if you eat like carbs or like a loaf of bread before you start drinking, it'll absorb all the alcohol and then the alcohol won't get into your system. It's not true. Um, all that happens is instead of going right through that pyloric sphincter, the pyloric sphincter says, no, there's a lot of shit I gotta deal with right now. Do you see how much food is in this stomach? You're not getting through here for a while. So the alcohol lines up in a nice line and then it just goes through at a slow and steady rate. So if you don't wanna get drunk really fast, you can just eat a bunch of food. Um, but rest assured that most of that alcohol will actually get into your bloodstream eventually so you won't be wasting your hard-earned money. Carbonation, though, uh, if you didn't know this, carbonated beverages get you drunk faster. And a lot of people are like, oh, it increases the pressure in your bloodstream and then pushes alcohol into your brain or bullshit like that, like it's not true. Um, <laughs> what, it, 
If you want the scientific explanation from me, I would say it tickles your pyloric sphincter and convinces it to open. And so it's like, ha, 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 ha. And the pyloric sphincter's like, oh, you. Oh, you rum and coke. Go on in. Go on in. And then it lets everything into the small intestine. So instead of hanging out in the stomach, um, all the alcohol hangs out with the carbonation and gets to actually go into your small intestine and get you drunk. But then it's later in the night, and you're, you're pondering some deeper thoughts, such as beer before liquor, never been sicker. Liquor before beer, never fear. And you think, is this a fact? What? Is this wrong? No. OK, so the idea is, is if you drink beer first and then liquor later, then you will be sick, and you will get too drunk. But if you drink liquor first and then beer later, you won't be sick. And people are like, oh, it's all kinds of science. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but it's not. So me and you, we're best friends. We're hanging out. We're having a good time. We drink six beers, <laughs> as one does. Night's not over yet, though. So I'm like, hey, friend, we're going to have three more units of alcohol. You have a choice. Three units of beer or three shots. Now. This isn't difficult. If it's like midnight and we are drunk, I do not want to drink three whole new beers. It's gonna take forever to drink. It's gonna, like, it's horrible. I'm gonna feel like shit just because I'm like trying to push it back and it's just too much liquid, like way too much volume. So I'm gonna be like, yeah, let's do three shots and I'll do them in five minutes. So what happens instead, the reason why drinking liquor after beer makes you sick doesn't have to do with like chemistry or magic. It just has to do with it's really, really easy to drink a lot of liquor, and by the time you're six beers in, like, you don't fucking care what's going on. You're just like, yeah, I'm gonna drink all the liquor in the world, and I'm gonna be totally fine. But you can't drink all the beer in the world because beer is really big and heavy, and just it takes a really long time to deal with. So, if it's late at night and someone's like, let's do a bunch of shots, you can do it, and you can get really drunker, but know that it's not magic that's making you drunker, or chemistry that's making you drunker. It's just the fact that it's really, really hard to drink a lot of beer really fast getting you drunker. But a lot of people talk about mixing things. So like maybe I have a red wine and I have like a rum and coke and I have like a beer and people are like, oh man, that totally makes me sick. It's terrible. It's the worst. Here's a great quote about that. I'm going to read it to you. Reading from PowerPoints is a, a good practice. After three dry martinis and two sherries and two glasses of hock and four of burgundy and one of saturns and two of claret and three of port and two brandies and three whiskeys and sodas and a beer, most men will be very drunk and will have a very bad hangover. But night might not the quantity be at work here. And it's true. If you drink that much beer, you will probably get sick. So when you have a chance to mix like a ton of different alcohols together, it's probably just the fact that you're drinking so much alcohol that is making you sick. But once you're that drunk, maybe you have drunk feelings about things. <laughs> I was reading this one book, um, and they were like, they were like, well, in Japan, they categorize people in three different ways. You have the warai jogo, which is the happy drunk, the naki jogo, the sleepy drunk, the neji jogo, the nasty drunk. And I'm like, that's really cool. And then I Googled it, and the only source for that is the book I was reading. <laughs> and I was like, well, other cultures have to have this, too. So I was like, types of drunks in different cultures. And everything is like, crack.com's five favorite funny drunks. <laughs> and it wasn't what I was looking for. 
Um, but they actually did studies that prove this cool quote, wine is uh, only sweet to happy men. And people who are happy when they drink end up getting happier. And people who are bummed out when they drink end up getting more bummed out. So the idea is if you're depressed and you're like, I'm going to go drink away my sadness, you're not going to drink away your sadness. You're going to drink your way into more terrible sadness. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't drink if you're feeling down. But let's say you want to drink and then feel down regardless of anything. I have a chemical for you. Acetaldehyde. Um, that seems pretty confusing, right? Where does that come from? So when your body gets ethanol in it, you start to get drunk. And you're like, I love ethanol. It makes me drunk. But your body is like, getting drunk is terrible. We're going to convert this into acetaldehyde using this thing called ADH, um, alcohol dehydrogenase. And the thing about acetaldehyde is it doesn't have any good characteristics. It's just bad. It makes you feel like shit, like no one's happy with it. Um, and then your body has to convert that into acetic acid, which is vinegar. I don't know why it's putting vinegar in your body. Um, but it's fine to have vinegar in your body. So ethanol, totally cool, makes you drunk. Acetaldehyde, bad, it's a bummer. Acetic acid, it's fine. So one thing that happens when you have excess uh, acetaldehyde in your body is you get flushed. So people might be familiar with the term Asian glow. Um, and what that is, it's not a joke, it's a real thing. So um, in 40% of East Asians, uh, this chemical here that converts the acetaldehyde to acetic acid is only 8% as effective um, as like the, the normal copy. So what happens is you get a whole bunch of acetaldehyde made and normally you can convert that into acetic acid so you don't have to deal with all the bad things. But if you have like a, a bad copy of this gene, it takes a really, really, really long time to convert it. Um, so uh, you get like real flushed and you start to have a headache and nothing's very fun. Even worse than that um, is some East Asians and some Native Americans have a really good ADH copy which converts ethanol to acetaldehyde really quickly. So what that means is it's harder to get drunk because the ethanol is in your body as long. So for a small subset of people, they have a great copy of this and a terrible copy of that. So it takes all the ethanol they're trying to get drunk with, turns it into this terrible thing, and then takes forever to turn it into something that's fine again. And those people don't like to drink. But once upon a time, there was a crazy parasite that was in everybody, and apparently acetaldehyde would kill it. So once upon a time, before everyone was an alcoholic, it, would actually, it was actually good to have a bad copy of this gene, because then you wouldn't have protozoan parasites all up in your guts. So. If someone gets flushed and they're like, I can't drink alcohol, it's terrible, I get hungover, you can be like, you just don't have as many parasites as everyone else, and it's awesome. <laughs> so be proud of who you are. So other things that alcohol does. Um, once you start to drink enough, you start to feel kind of disassociated from your body, and you're like, what's going on here? And that's because it's associating with something called NMDA. Um, and that it's in your hippocampus, it's in other parts of your brain. But the reason why that's fun is because other drugs that uh, mess with NMDA are ketamine and PCP. So next time someone's like, let's do ketamine or PCP, you can be like, I got a Miller Lite, I'm fine. <laughs> Another thing that messing with NMDA receptors does is uh, it makes you black out. And so blacking out isn't a measure of how much you drink, it's actually how fast you drink it. So if you drink a lot really fast, you can black out. If you drink that same amount over a longer period of time, you don't get that drunk. 
Um, a good quote that I read is, early documentation from Alcoholics Anonymous describes a variety of blackout behavior, especially in the, like, for real blackout type, um, which includes driving for long distances or carrying on apparently normal conversations at parties. And I was like, back up a second. It's totally cool to carry on a conversation at a party that you don't remember, but how the fuck are you driving a really long distance when you're blackout drunk? I don't have an answer for that. It's dangerous. <laughs> so another bad thing that could happen to you if you think blacking out is bad is the spins. And you're like, oh, the spins are the worst. You lay down and you just want to die. Um, or go on like a merry-go-round. So the reason why you get the spins is because your inner ear is crazy, A, and looks like an octopus, um, but B, it has a lot to do with how you balance. And so imagine you have like a bag of rocks in your ear, and whenever you jiggle that bag around, the rocks push on hairs on the inside of the bag, and that means I'm moving this way or I'm moving that way. It's kind of like a ball pit. And so what happens is the otoliths are the little stones. And so uh, whenever you drink a lot of alcohol, it changes the pressure in this bag. And so it kind of deforms, and then it just like pushes on the balls in the ball pit for no good reason but that just signals to your brain that, whoa, I'm moving here. And you're like, no, it's just the pressure in my ear is weird. And your brain's like, no, I know that we're moving and I'm gonna give you spins for a while. That sucks. So next up, kissing-ish kissing -ish stuff. Um, it's all about sexy times with alcohol, right? That's what we're here for. So human beings, we love symmetry. We like to look at someone's face and say, your face is so symmetrical, let's kiss about it. <laughs> Because it means that your genes are good and you don't get terrible diseases throughout childhood and stuff like that. Um, now, computers can figure this out by doing cool math like that. Your brain can figure it out by doing cool math in your brain, but the problem is whenever you start to drink, you get bad at math. <laughs> so what ends up happening is if someone looks like this originally, Suddenly, you're like, you are really attractive stock photography people. And the thing is, the reason why all of these people are attractive and not just the people who you are sexually attracted to are attractive is because it's not like when you ingest alcohol, you just really want a bone. It's because when you ingest alcohol, you literally can't see symmetry as well anymore or you think things are as symmetrical. So like dudes will look fine, ladies will look fine, everyone will look fine. It's just like across the board everyone is way more attractive and they probably are more fun too. So another thing that happens is you get more testosterone. For serious women get more testosterone and some people argue about whether men actually get more testosterone too. Let's just say they do. So when you get more testosterone in your body, whether you're a man or a woman, it's like putting on sexy music because you really want to kiss some people, shall we say. Um, but the thing is, let's go back to Shakespeare. It provokes the desire, but it takes away the performance. <laughs> that's, that's from Macbeth. Um, that, the line before it has to do with how you pee a lot whenever you're drunk. So they knew science back then, man. So what happens is uh, two things. A, this is if you're a guy. If you're a lady, you can kind of like sweep it under the carpet because things aren't as obvious. But um, if you're a guy, number one, remember we were talking about being disassociated and you like can't feel your body the same way and blah, blah, blah. If you are trying to have an orgasm, you should probably feel your body a little bit. <laughs> it helps, I promise. So whenever you can't feel your body as well because you're drunk, 
like you don't know what's going on and you're just like I can tell something's happening but it's not good enough and on the other end when you have a lot of serotonin serotonin's actually released post-orgasm to kind of make you like cuddle and be all friendly and stuff so if your body already has a bunch of serotonin in it it's like what do I have to have sex for I don't need that at all I got all the serotonin I need so eh, it happens but after you fail to have sex with someone after you fail to have sex you fall asleep it's really easy to fall asleep when you're drunk right some people even have nightcaps to fall asleep uh, whenever they just can't fall asleep. So they're like, I'm gonna drink a bunch of alcohol, it's gonna put me to sleep. But the thing is, there's something called the rebound effect. I'm sorry that's not a picture of Godzilla. Um, when your body, once you're asleep, after about four hours, your body finally gets all the alcohol out of it. And for the time that you had alcohol in it, the alcohol was like, Let's slow down, let's slow down. But once the alcohol's gone, your body's like, I'm ready to go, let's do this, let's get some shit done. Problem is you're asleep, so you can't get shit done. So what happens is for the second half of the night after you've been drinking a lot, your body uh, has really bad REM sleep and it spends a lot of time in really light sleep. So it's easy to be woken up. Um, I like to call this drunk early awake, not because you're drunk when you wake up, but because you were drunk before and then you wake up really early. And the thing is, because REM sleep is so bad in the second half of the night after you've been drinking, just wake up. Wake up and get some shit done. Because you know what? It's not going to get any better if you sleep longer. Advice from me, a guy who knows. <laughs> and then this is the slide because it's REM sleep and it's about sleeping during the day. And it's, I don't know. So hangovers, they're fun. Um, the, the science name for hangovers is supposedly uh, vasalgia, which is from the Norwegian word kvais, which is uneasiness after debauchery. <laughs> cool, right? I did a little research on this. I can find one paper from like 1996 where they use this word to describe hangovers. And then the Norwegian word, if you Google it, it's just pictures of nematodes. So <laughs> don't trust the internet. Um, uh, so a, a great quote about being hungover, um, who is this, Kingsley Amos? He said, uh, the number one best description of a hangover in literature came from Franz Kafka. And that line is, as Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic insect. Not actually about being hungover, but absolutely how it feels to be hungover. So why do you get hungover? So, besides just drinking a lot and all that, um, your choice of drink actually does matter. So, uh, congeners are byproducts of fermentation or aging that make their way into your alcohol and add flavor, but also add hangovers. So, it's things like fusel oils. Fusel is German for bad liquor, supposedly. So, it sounds bad, but I promise it's good. Um, esters, uh, methanol. The thing is, tasty bits. <laughs> So the thing is, uh, something like whiskey or brandy or red wine, one of the reasons why they taste so good and have so much flavor is stuff like this. Um, whereas the reason why vodka doesn't taste like a fucking thing is because it doesn't have any of these in it. So if you wanted a cool chart from a scientific journal about what you should drink if you don't want to get hungover, I got it right here for you. So brandy has the most congeners. It'll give you the worst hangover. Ethanol diluted in orange juice, I don't know why they didn't just call it a screwdriver, um, <laughs> is the best thing to drink. So 
do what you will. Uh, you can take pictures of that or just Google it. Google ethanol diluted in orange juice and you'll find it in like a second. So you have a lot of problems when you're hungover. Um, what about tequila? What about tequila? Uh, it is colored. It has stuff in it. I don't even know, man. <laughs> Scientific experiments and you'll figure it out. Okay, so when, in the morning, you are dehydrated. You have low blood sugar. Um, you're dehydrated because the vasopressin thing, like with the kidneys, you've been peeing all night. Your body can't actually hold on to uh, liquids. So you should probably drink a bunch of liquids. You have low blood sugar, because when you drink alcohol, it uh, really kicks up insulin. Uh, you have anxiety, because I'll talk about that later. Maybe I don't talk about it later. You have anxiety because uh, in the way that when you were sleepy and then you became unsleepy once you were asleep, um, when you drink a little bit and you get relaxed, and then in the morning you wake up, your body's like, let's stop being relaxed. Let's get really anxious about something right now. And you're like, all right, I'll do whatever you say. Um, and then you have to deal with all those chemical byproducts, all the, the congeners that are, that are in your body. So how are you going to cure all of your hangovers? If you're an ancient Assyrian, ground up birds, beaks, and myrrh. Uh, if you're an ancient European in the Middle Ages, you munch on raw eel and bitter almonds, and Mongolians would eat pickled sheep's eyes. So that's cool. Um, here, here in modern day America, we like to do exercise. Uh, <laughs> this is about a comic where Charles Barkley is taught by Godzilla to be a friendly guy. So I haven't read it all, but it sounds pretty good. So exercise actually makes you more dehydrated. So if you're going to do exercise, you should drink a lot of water. Um, but on the other hand, the exertion involved in exercise distracts you from the fact that you're hungover, which is what a lot of hangover cures are, whether it's spicy food or like eating gross food or whatever. The idea is to distract you from the fact that like you're fucked up right now, you know, and like you feel, you feel terrible and you're very unhappy, um, but the spicy food will take care of it for you. But hair of the dog that bit you, huh? You might ask Soma, where does hair of the dog that bit you come from? And I would say, well, in the 18th century in Scotland, if you were bit by a dog, you should put its hair in the wound because that prevents disease and promotes healing. And that's just as scientific as hair of the dog that bits you. So what happens is you drink alcohol in the morning and you're like, I'm feeling great. You're not actually feeling great. Or you're feeling great for a little while. Um, the problem with hair of the dog is that your liver has to process all of the alcohol and alcohol byproducts and blah, blah, blah in order to help you feel better. Once you drink more alcohol, that's just more work that your liver has to do. So you're just delaying the inevitable. So you should just sit in bed and cry about it. <laughs> or coffee and aspirin. Someone had some rats and then they got them drunk and then they fed them caffeine and aspirin. And they were like, the rats don't seem hungover anymore. <laughs> And then it was in like every news outlet ever. So if you're a rat, coffee and aspirin, but not Tylenol, because acetaminophen is bad for your liver, especially when combined with alcohol. So no Tylenol, just aspirin. So you're dehydrated, you have low blood sugar, you have chemicals in your body, you have anxiety. What are you really gonna do to fix this? For dehydration, water and time. Probably should have been drinking water the night before, let's be honest. For blood sugar, food and time. Probably should have been eating food the night before, let's be honest. Chemicals, time and time. Uh, 
you, you can't really make your liver work harder, so you're screwed on that front. And then anxiety. What do you do about anxiety? Well, I was reading a book. Uh, and and uh, it was Kingsley Amos. And he split hangovers into the physical hangover and the metaphysical hangover. And the metaphysical hangover is when like, you wake up and you're like, I'm really bad at my job and my family and friends wish I was dead. And I should have never worn that shirt I wore last night and I can't believe I said that really stupid thing. And there are two ways to cure it. And number one is to just be like, you're hungover. Stop paying attention to your brain. And then you'll be fine once you acknowledge that you're hungover. But the other one is you have to go through a regimen. Um, and he recommends a reading regimen where you start with kind of like downer classics and work your way up to something a little more cheerful. Um, and uh, so he really recommends Paradise Lost, book 12, uh, line 606 until the end. And this is where it's, it's the end of Paradise Lost. So you have like an archangel rolling down and cherubim that are shooting around and they're like meteors, it says, li literally meteoric, which sounds pretty cool. Um, and pe like people are hugging and whatever. And then like Adam and Eve are getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So you can think to yourself, at least I didn't fuck up the whole human race for like the rest of eternity. So I'm doing okay. And also I'm reading some pretty cool stuff. So I'm a smart guy. All right, so lessons learned. Number one, drink water and eat food before and during your drinking because it slows the absorption. It all gets into you anyway. Um, it just prevents all those problems the next day, the low blood sugar, the dehydration. Sure, you have to pee all the time. You're going to have to do that anyway. Number two, taste your drinks. Worst hangovers. I don't like vodka. Maybe you realize that. Whiskey is awesome. Brandy, if you feel like you want to be real fancy, you can drink it and get a hangover. But generally, the better tasting a drink is by itself, the worse the hangover will be in the morning. And number three, if you remember the rules, you're probably not doing a very good job getting drunk. So you can just disregard all of this. The end. So now, presenting the one, the only, Sarah Lohman, who is going to talk about historic drinking games. I'm a little drunk, <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Um, so we'll see how this goes. So we're going to talk about real drinking games throughout history because it's actually not a modern invention. But drinking games are almost as ancient as drinking itself. Drinking games kind of deal, date back to the Greeks because the Greeks were the first ones who consumed for the sake of consumption. You know, it's an era where we're crossing over from we have to have food, we have to have beer because it has nutrients to it, to we've got a lot of disposable income. So we're going to host these things called symposia. And when you come, it's only for the men. The ladies can be a servant or a flute player or a dancer. The men are going to come and they're going to recline like this and you're going to talk about things. You're going to talk about philosophy. Mostly they're, they were love themed. You came and you talked about love and the meaning of love. And to help get you at the truth of all these things about love, you would drink wine. Yay! So there was a traditional vessel for the symposium called a crater. And in the crater... They would mix wine and water. They considered drinking wine straight to be a heathen thing to do. So there was a chief kind of um, proclaimed for the symposium, and this chief would decide when we'd mix another crater of wine, 
and also how strong the wine would be, how much water you'd mix in proportion to the wine. So there is one person designated in charge of the drunkenness of the entire party, which I think is an interesting idea. So when you drank your wine, um, you drank it out of cups that looked like this. It had this little base, and it had kind of a handle on it like that. And the very first drinking game that's known was described in Plato's Symposium. And it was essentially that you would chug your wine cup and then slam it down to the person next to you to make like a satisfactory sound. So if you've ever played slap the bag? <laughs> this is an ancient version of slap the bag. Now things got a little bit more complicated, not too far out, with this game called Cotabus. Now, Cotabus, or Cotabus, I do not speak Greek, was where you take those wine cups, and you see he's got, here, he's got his fingers hooked through one of the handles on those wine cups. Um, the reclining is important. You, you sit, you prop yourself on a pillow, you got to get yourself good and comfortable because you're a Greek male. And then with your right hand, you would flick the last drops of wine, the dregs, any kind of solid particles in the bottom of your cup. Now, this game was played in several ways. You could flick it at your friend, if you're an asshole. <laughs> you could flick it at a target. It was often like a metal disc that was kind of precariously balanced, so you could get enough force to knock the disc over, and then you'd win a prize. Um, in other versions of it, they floated cups um, in water, and your goal was to fill your cup full enough that it sank, and that's how you won. You could win little cakes. You could win kisses from the enslaved servants, and that's how you played... And then the symposium would come to a close, either A, with an orgy, or B, with a riot. <laughs> orgy or a riot, which is coincidentally how we're ending the evening tonight, so pick your team. All right. So at almost the same time in ancient China, they're also developing a drinking culture for the same reasons. There's a wealthy upper class, and like they're having big banquets, and they're consuming alcohol. So the first game I'm going to show you is a game that we're actually going to play. And we're good and drunk enough, I think this will be interesting. What these women are doing are casting arrows. Here's another illustration of it. Um, at Chinese banquets, it was tradition to have an archery competition. And then after the archery competitions, people just started like throwing arrows while they were drinking into um, ornamental jugs. So after a while, they stopped doing the archery competitions and just stuck with the throwing arrows into jugs. So here I have this dollar store vase. And I don't have arrows, but I do have barbecue kebab sticks. I'm going to set up this vase and these sticks right up here. So if you want to stick around, you can try your own hand at it. And every time you miss, you have to take a drink. Those are the rules. So there's another game that originated in ancient China and is still played today. It's called, um, I'm going to butcher it, so I apologize. I believe it's called Hua Qin. Pretty good. And Hua Chen is still played, and it's really kind of a different version of rock, paper, scissors. There were a lot of like rock, paper, scissors types games in Chinese culture. Now, to play this game, there are two players, and each player is throwing between zero and five fingers, okay? While you're deciding what number you're going to throw, you're shouting out the total number of fingers that you think will be thrown. So your fingers plus your partner fingers. 
So while you're throwing two, you're saying eight, five, four, 10, six, one. I guess that's not possible. <laughs> Let me show you, I'm gonna show you a video of um, people playing this game so you can get a sense of it. Can we have the audio up a little bit? Of course. Okay. Can I show you Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 Someone lost or won at that point. So remember when Soma said doing math when you're drunk is hard? This is what's happening in Chinese beers, and this is particularly popular with old men, who the, the more they drink, the more intense their shouts become. They're just screaming at each other. So the next people we want to talk about are geisha. The main thing the geisha do is you hire them to come to your party. And they're there to make the party fun, to have sparkling conversation, to perform dance or music if called on, and to play drinking games. Because they basically say, well, drinking alone isn't fun, and drinking in itself isn't fun, so we're going to make games to make drinking fun. And I love this picture, especially for the geisha lane across the middle, like some like college fraternity photo. So one geisha game is called Compira Fune Fune, and it is deceptively simple. So all you need essentially is some sort of cup like this. You're gonna need a little towel so that it doesn't slip, and you lay it down. Actually, I'm gonna play the video, but the sound doesn't need to come up. Um, the name comes from a, a nonsense song that's sung with it that I don't know the words of. You can keep the sound one, fairly down, that's perfect. Two, one, okay, so you see they're tapping in rhythm. When the cup is down, you tap with an open hand, but you saw she picked the cup up, and her opponent tap with a closed hand. That is the whole game. Tapping the cup with an open hand. Yeah, picking it up, and the opponent having to tap with a closed hand. Okay. <laughs> Deceptively simple. Um, I need one more person to come up and hold this microphone while Soma and I play. Here, all right, Rima, come on up. Okay, ready? So we're gonna play one round, and then you should be thinking if you have the balls to come up here and play this game, or the ovaries. Let's I just be have fair. to say this game is impossible. So I don't know the words of the song that officially go, so um, we're gonna sing Row, Row, Row Your Boat. And traditionally, you're supposed to get faster and faster and faster. So would you hold the mic so that we can be heard?
I would like to say that before we did all this, we did like a, like a rehearsal game. And I lost like 40 times in a row. It was very sad. It's true. It's true. And if you watch the geisha, they never lose. They are not even paying attention. They're just like, la, 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 la. Oh, you lost again. That's because I'm a geisha and this is my job. So there you go. The simplest games with the simplest rules. And that is what makes the best drinking game, doesn't it? So we've got one more to talk about, which is American, which is called Drinking Healths. Now, drinking house is something that was imported from England, and it came over with the earliest pilgrims. And it was a kind of a problem in the middle of the 17th century. The um, pilgrim ministers, the governors, they wanted taverns to be a place where you went and had a pint. You know, early settlers needed that community. They needed that brotherhood. They needed that beer, that nourishment. What was happening was that a group of people were going out together, and when you'd walk into a bar like this, you would say... To the queen's health, a round for everybody. I'm not buying you a round. <laughs> but in theory, I would. <laughs> so everyone drinks to the queen's health, but then the next person on didn't want to seem like a moocher. So they say, well, to the king's health, to the king's health. A drink, a drink for everybody to the king's health. And so on and so on and so on to, to President Obama. To Mrs. Obama. Yeah. To the lovely Obama daughters. Yeah. To Hillary Clinton. Yeah. To their adorable dog. And so on and so on and so on. With everybody buying around for every toast, you see where this becomes a problem. People are going to the bars and they're getting absolutely wasted. And in the other version of this game, it wasn't just like toasting and down the line, which actually is also very popular in Chinese culture now too, where you toast your host and your host toasts you and then you toast the host's wife. The host's wife toasts you and they toast the children and the children toast you, I don't know. But, so you toast it down the line. The other version was every round, you would one up the person after you. By the Revolutionary War, it became very popular with military parties. So you'd go out with the captain and the general and everyone would go out to the bar and the person of the highest rank would buy the first round and propose a toast. The person of the next highest rank would buy the next round and propose a toast and on down until you had nine or 10 drinks of ale or cider or whiskey. You're getting pretty trashed at the old bar. So this actually came out very, very early in 1678. This process was called drinking healths or healthing or treating. And this is a whole book of 120 incidences of people toasting healths and then immediately befalling horrible ends. In one, a woman drinks a health and then a devil hoists her into the air and carries her away. Toasting someone was seen as asking for God's wrath. And the, the uh, ministers suggest that you maybe should pray for someone's help instead of toasting. That was the idea behind this book. Okay. Seems a little ridiculous, seems a little laughable. But toasting continued as a thing through the 18th century into the 19th century. And the following chart I'm about to show you is the annual consumption of distilled spirits per capita per U.S. gallon from 1779 to 1979. So toasting was a huge thing until 1830. When we were... 
We were consuming five gallons of spirits, rum, whiskey, gin, or brandy, for every man, woman, and child in the United States of America. Now, I know those babies ain't drinking. So America was in trouble at this point, and this was actually the tipping point for the temperance movement. Where you see that big decline is the beginning of what will eventually become prohibition in the 1920s. Um, this is a really good illustration. This is a piece of temperance propaganda called the Drunkard's Progress. <laughs> step by step by step, here's how it reads. Okay, so number one, down here it is a glass with a friend, right? Harmless. Number two, a glass to keep the cold out. It's chilly out there. Step number three, uh, maybe one glass too much. We're a little stumbly, what can we do? Step number four, drunk and riotous. I would venture to say the orgy is right on the horizon. I'd venture to say that we are at step number five. The summit attained. Jolly companions, a confirmed drunkard. To jolly companions! And then it's all downhill. Step number six, poverty and disease. Step number seven, forsaken by friends. Step number eight, desperation and crime. Oh, and then just cut off. Step number nine, death by suicide. <laughs> and I want to point out down here, she is so sad, and that baby does not have a daddy. So things get fairly intense by the beginning of the 19th century, and I don't have a very popular belief in this, but I would venture to say that America probably needed prohibition. It didn't need to stick around, but we were a fucking mess before our prohibition came. And for all the bad things that happened, for all the cheating and lying and crime, you know what we did less of after prohibition? Drink. So in the end, that baby gets her daddy, that lady ain't so sad, boo, on children. <laughs> That's going to go into the podcast with no context. <laughs> so to kind of wrap up our evening, I want to give you a few wordier 19th century toasts. And the appropriate response when someone toasts is huzzah. So get your huzzahs warm. <clears throat> to the enemies of our country, may they have cobweb breeches, a porcupine saddle, a hard-trotting horse, and an eternal journey. Hut, hut. <laughs> this one comes from Mr. Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> Mr. Benjamin Franklin. He says, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Hut, hut, huzzah! That was a good one. And my final toast, I want simply be to you, the audience of MSG. Thank you for coming every month to the audience. Hut, hut, huzzah! Nicely done. Thank you, everybody.